Welcome to the Create Something Awesome Today podcast, where it's all about educating and motivating creative pros and entrepreneurs from around the world with simple and easy to implement ideas. And of course, helping you create something awesome today. And now, welcome your host. He is the founder of Founder of Awesome Creator Academy, a YouTube educator, and the biggest Star Wars nerd you'll ever meet, Roberto Blake. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Create Something Awesome Today podcast. This is your host, Roberto Blake, helping you create something awesome today. Welcome back to the program. It's been a little while here since we've done an episode. I want to welcome those live viewers that are watching here on YouTube back to the show. And I also want to, of course, say a big hearty thank you to our audio listeners who are watching, uh, well, sorry, not watching, who are listening to the podcast on other platforms such as Apple, Spotify, uh, Google, uh, just wherever you happen to be listening to podcasts. We definitely appreciate it. Please give us a rating and a review over there in your podcasting platform of choice. So, uh, you know, you might notice a few updates here to the studio. I've added some more sand paneling, LED lights, things like that. Um, and of course, if you're watching the video, you might notice even things like uh, the different camera angles. And so we do everything we can to just kind of improve, you know, the quality of the show. And we really do appreciate everybody who supports by listening. Today, I want to talk about something that is actually, I think, really important and near and dear to me. Uh, it's something I'm actually going to be talking about a little bit in my upcoming book about being a content creator. It's definitely um, one of the, the themes that is covered in it. And I want to talk about imposter syndrome. I think this is something that a lot of people struggle with. Even people who have success sometimes feel a sense of imposter syndrome. And so what do we mean by imposter syndrome? It's really easy to feel like what you're doing isn't good enough, doesn't matter, or that um, something you do is going to underperform, even if you've had success in the past, you know. There is a lot that can undermine the confidence that you have in what you're doing one way or another. It could be that you have a piece of content you put out. It doesn't get the response that you might have hoped for. It could be that you see other people you started out with growing and becoming more successful or, uh, you know, more prosperous than you. You might literally be happy for them, but you also are sad for you. That's a thing that does happen. I, I tend to not feel at least that version of imposter syndrome. I'm actually always not only really rooting for my friends and happy for them, but I also realize how vastly different what I want to do is from what a lot of them want to do. And so I don't feel, I think, uh, jealous or envious of other people's success, or I don't let it make me feel bad about my success. But sometimes I do feel imposter syndrome. I do feel that there are things that I want to do that people just wouldn't be interested in or wouldn't care about and where I wouldn't be, I wouldn't get the support that I would have hoped for. And it is discouraging and it does make it harder to want to do those projects. And so that is something that happens. I think that it's not just me, it's a lot of other creators. Sometimes we do uh, second or third or fourth channels to kind of uh, split the difference on, well, here's what people expect from me. Here's what people want from me. And then here's like maybe something else I want to do. And it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a challenge because 
it's not always practical to do multiple channels for most creators. Uh, that can definitely be a monetary struggle of, hey, and not only just a monetary struggle, a time struggle of balancing out, like making different content, different channels, different uh, platforms, doing all these different things at once, spreading yourself thin. That makes it very hard and difficult to be successful. But at the same time, it's very emotionally unsatisfying to spend 20, 30, 50 hours on a project and then not have it work out, not have it um, feel like it was of any worth or any value because people didn't give it attention. And and I think that things have worth and value even when they don't have attention or when they don't get uh, the performance or when there's not like a massive, massive audience for it. I think it still is worthwhile and justified to do those things. But a lot of times it feels like well, okay, well, why am I posting those things? I mean, I can give you a primary example. Um, with me, um, I do my wildlife photography, right? Um, and it's something that um, I feel like, okay, well, there's so many things that like, there's so many great photographers out there and people doing stuff like that, that, okay, well, well, why would anyone care or pay attention to like my photography or my stuff specifically? Right. Um, and so what, when it comes to that, I just post a lot of, sometimes I will make some of it available in my Instagram stories. Sometimes I'll post it in my YouTube community tab, but mostly I just like occasionally tweet and promote like my, uh, wildlife photography and art prints. And I built a website for it with Shopify uh, because I'm building a Shopify tutorial. I'm working on a Shopify tutorials, but I have my own Shopify store where I sell canvases and prints. And I, I do that with uh, createawesomethings.com. And so that's where I directly sell my uh, posters and prints and things of that nature. But one of the reasons I did that is I did want somewhere for my photography to live and to exist as far as my passion for wildlife photography but I also know it's not something my audience, my hardcore audience like signed up for. So I don't really do much with it on my YouTube channel. And I don't necessarily do much with it on my Instagram where people are looking for like motivation and things like that. But occasionally, if I'm really proud of a piece of artwork, I will post it over there. And, you know, uh, it's okay once in a while for things not to perform. But, you know, these are things that most creators do struggle with is where do I put the things I'm passionate with, even if they're going to underperform? Uh, now, speaking of like value and ROI, my Lord, um, you guys are tremendous. So for those of you listening in the live, uh, in the audio only audience, we do a live YouTube version um, sporadically when I can manage it. It's supposed to be Monday through Friday at uh, about uh, 6 p.m. ish Eastern Standard Time, but it ends up usually not being that. But uh, we have a super chat, which is a direct fan donation from my YouTube audience. And this one is from Curtis. This one is from Malevolent Elephant is his YouTube channel. Uh, so shouting that out here. His name is Curtis. And he's kicking things off with a $100 super chat. That's amazing. Thank you for that. And then we've got uh, the Carrot Juice podcast. It's Carrot with a K, K-A-R-A-T, Juice podcast, with a $19 super chat. And his message is, appreciate you so much, Roberto. This podcast is needed in the community and your voice on different topics are refreshing and allow me to see things from a different perspective. You are great, my man. Thanks. Positive vibes. I really do appreciate that. And it's feedback like that that makes it somewhat easier to do other things that you might be nervous about or scared uh, to do. But not everyone has like the kind of community 
that supports with their eyeballs and thank God with their wallets that I do um, to make it um, to make it interesting, you know, uh, for people to do things like that. So I really do appreciate it when I get any kind of support, whether it's the listeners that download these episodes or even some of you as viewers that go back and you listen to the audio throughout your day, whether that's on YouTube on the channel, which helps because we're monetized now, or whether you donate through Super Chats or whether you listen to the podcast audio version only and you download that wherever you're downloading your podcast from. And so many of you do it that we're up to... In the first seven days of episodes, we're getting like 250 downloads, which puts us like, I think, at the top 50% of podcasts. That's great. Um, we get so many ratings and reviews from all of you. I think we have over 100 five-star ratings and reviews in Apple Podcasts, which uh, is amazing. I'd love for it to be you know, a couple of hundred, but I'll take 100 plus reviews. I love that we get the support there, but not everyone has, not every creator has a community behind them for that kind of support. And I've been doing content for many years on YouTube, about roughly a decade here on YouTube. And um, I think that that consistency has earned me some support. But I still, to this day, even after all these years, I'm always very grateful, thankful, and you know, sometimes pleasantly surprised by the type of support that I get from my community, from all of you. And that uh, we've got this podcast up to with not a lot of content. We don't even have 100 episodes of the podcast. I think we have like 50-something, 60-something episodes of the podcast. And we have uh, 2,000 subscribers. We have a massive amount of overall downloads. Most of the podcast episodes get to 1,000 downloads at this point, at some point at, um, in the replays. We're getting uh, 250, 300 in the first week of the audio-only episodes being out. We've caught up to... I think episode 55 and so i think uh we're we still have to catch up to like episode 60 and so with with those episodes being out you you all have been tremendous and you guys have been binge listening to the to these episodes some of them um are less than 30 days and have gotten in less than 30 days almost a thousand downloads so you have been listening you've been binge listening you've been really helping a lot with securing the value of the podcast as its own brand. And um, I can't tell you how much that means to me. Um, you know, it's, it's been really, it's been really great. Um, it's been amazing. Um, even the last five episodes combined right now that have been out for like um, about roughly like two weeks or something probably have like um, almost 1800 downloads. Um Let's see, cumulative just for the week. We've had 6,000 downloads this week, um, I think. Something like that. Some absurd number. Um, so thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, it is very much appreciated. And yeah, I enjoy doing it. And and you should be able to do content that you um, enjoy doing and that you feel has and gives value to your community and i think right now we're averaging like yeah almost two thousand a week downloads so that's pretty cool that's dope <laughs> but yeah i mean enough about the podcast stats what i really want to talk about here is like okay stats let's look at that stats can be a way of validating what you're doing and sometimes that can make you feel slightly more secure or more validated in what you're doing but Sometimes imposter syndrome, there's not like, 
there's not necessarily a number or an outcome that makes you stop feeling nervous or less than or a sense of anxiety about it. I'll give you a real example. My main YouTube channel has 500,000 subscribers. What if I told you that a video doing well impacts me almost as much as a video not doing well? When a video does very well, I have performance anxiety that the next video will be an absolute failure by comparison to the previous video. And sometimes it gets in my head and I don't upload for a while because I'm like, how can I top that? Uh, this did well beyond my expectations. When a video does beyond my expectations, I do get in my head about the next video. It's going to be really crappy to have like a video do 70, 80,000 views. And then the video after that's going to do 10,000 views, but it doesn't matter. What really matters is, well, did the people watching it get value out of it? Did the people who did give the video a chance, how did they feel? And so that's like something I've been wrestling with. I've been wrestling with the fact that what really does matter is the people who do give something a chance. How do they feel about it? There's only so much I can do about making people give something a chance that they're not interested in or excited for on their own. I can't make people excited about things on their own um, if I'm being honest about the content and if I'm not clickbaiting them, which is why many of your favorite YouTubers, they just, they say, you know what? We tried some things. It didn't work out. We're only going to upload videos that you guys have already. We're not going to take any more chances. We're just going to upload videos or make content or do episodes or podcasts or interviews that have proven that you guys will just watch them no matter what. And this stifles creativity. Now, an alternative that I figured it out for me personally is, well, being creative maybe on another channel. But then when you're doing another channel, you're taking away energy from the first thing. And then you feel like you have to justify it. So you have to see the views or the ad revenue or something to justify it. And then that makes things challenging. Uh, now, a, a way that I've gotten out of it is just having things that I do outside of YouTube and don't feel as much like I have to post them. I have to post them, which is why um, going and taking my wildlife and bird photography and doing... Um, that stuff. And again, I might even stuff um, that because you can use Shopify and you can do blogs on Shopify. I might literally post things that haven't been made prints to sell just to show off some of the artwork on the create some create awesome things.com create awesome things.com uh, website. I might literally do things that aren't just like um, my my uh, prints like that are for sale because I want to showcase more of this photography, but I feel like it needs its own place to live. And so I have that and I have my landscapes and I don't really necessarily feel like starting yet another Instagram just for my photography. And so doing the, uh, the motivation and entrepreneur lifestyle stuff on Instagram, I feel like that's where what has to be on the Instagram, the stuff that you guys resonate with, the guys that the things that you all that all you guys support are the things that, okay, well, that's what I have to post on the platforms that are strong public facing and that the brands that sponsor me look at. I have to post what works there. I really do. And the thing is, some of that comes at the expense of expression. But here's the good news for me, at least. Because I'm building this art studio in my basement, I'm having more ways to focus and channel my energy, and it's things that I may not always want to post or share, and it'd be nice to have acknowledgement for just my own personal artwork, but I grew up in the world before the internet. I'm actually used to not necessarily feeling fully supported outside of my family for just creative work and artwork and things that may not be mainstream, 
So I'm kind of used to that. And I might find other things to do with that. Um, I might even go do um, with some of my painting stuff. I might go the traditional art route and like, um, like see if there's a local gallery that wants to support my work. Um, a lot of people have told me, well, Roberto, for your actual artwork, because some people have seen my actual artwork or photography, they've said, well, what about like doing the NFTs thing? I actually don't have a problem with NFTs. I know it's popular to hate on them right now. There are some scams and scammers. I see scams as a scam problem, not as a tech problem. I don't hate NFTs any more than I hate email for all the phishing and email scams that like you realize how many phishing and email scams have like stolen people's YouTube channels or hijack people's YouTube channels and delete YouTube channels. But it's like, I'm not saying here saying email's a problem. Scammers are a problem. Uh, text messaging has hijacked people's YouTube channels. That's why YouTube had to figure out things with two-factor auth authentication for all monetized channels. They made all monetized channels. They changed the policy. I still need to make a video about the new YouTube 22 monetization rules and policies. But one of them was that we all had to go to two-factor authentication on all monetized channels. I'm not blaming text messaging for scammers. I blame scammers for scammers. You know what I'm saying? So I don't like NFTs don't bother me. Um, but I just feel like right now the climate around NFTs is too bothersome to do my paintings or my photography is that. And that also might be imposter syndrome because people love my work. And maybe even if I did it or I did it as an anonymous artist, it would be people would like it. Because what I would probably do, what I would probably do is if I did a painting and then I digitized and made an NFT, I would make the holders of that able to buy. Um, they'd have the right to buy the print or something like that. Or if it's a one for one, they have a right to either buy a print and it'll be limited edition prints or someone can buy the original painting from me, a physical thing tied to a digital asset so you have both a digital asset and a physical asset and the reason i like that is because dvds and blu-rays now let you have a physical copy and a digital copy and i like that idea i like what if you buy a digital piece of something but then you also get to buy the print but instead of doing a print on demand store you do a limited run of these physical products and the only the people who have the digital right to those physical experiences get them. So that's the kind of thing I'm thinking about for artists because I care about traditional artists getting paid for their work and I care about digital artists getting paid for their work and I've been thinking about it. But the climate is so toxic that even though I know I'd be doing it the right way, that I have imposter syndrome about wading into something that's controversial even though I know that I have the best of intentions. I just don't want to be called, oh, you're one of those scumbags. I've had to uh, fight people on, hey, Bitcoin's not a scam or Ethereum's not a scam. And people, oh, you're one of those Bitcoin bros. And it gets me insecure and it makes me imposter syndrome because I fought for 10 years to build my legitimacy, do the right things, not be crooked about any of it, be one of the most transparent people about how I make money. And then you make one opinion that people disagree with and they're ready to lump you in with the worst scumbags in the world because you have one thing in common with them or you like one thing that they also like or you're a part of one thing that they're also a part of, then you're the absolute devil and you're the worst person in the world. And you know what happens? It means that there are people like me 
who don't talk about the things that they're excited about or passionate about, if there's any hint of controversy or criticism, we self-censor ourselves, we silence ourselves, we tone down our free speech, and then we just decide, okay, I'll only post or tweet or comment completely innocent, wholesome, vapid, shallow crap, and never have a real opinion about anything because I'm worried about being judged for it or lumped in with scumbags. And so I, I really get annoyed by how much imposter syndrome is not only part of my own experience and how frustrating it is, but how much uh, creators censor themselves because the ability to have open and nuanced conversations is gone. Thanks, Twitter. Thanks, TikTok. Uh, we have a culture. We have this cancel culture nonsense where everybody is always looking to be angry all the time about everything. I've seen people come at the most wholesome people, Mr. Beast, Jack Septicai, um, oh, uh, you know, um, over, I just seen like over the most innocent things and it's nonsense or, or for, or for having one God forbid hot take my Lord, they rip, the most wholesome, innocent creators I know apart over nonsense sometimes. And if they're willing to do that to these people who are huge, like then what hope, uh, like sometimes I get depressed. I go like, wow, I better just toe the line and be a good little boy and never ever say anything that could possibly upset anybody. And I don't like the idea of censoring myself. I really don't. As a kid, I had to do a little bit of it because I was bullied and beat up for being a nerd. When I was a kid, um, you know, you like anime, people beat you up for that. You like Marvel and DC Comics, people beat you up for that. It wasn't popular to be a gamer when I was a kid. It's popular now. And it's a shame. I'm glad that kids today get to express a little bit more of themselves or be themselves and not have to feel bad about liking what they like or expressing a passion for the, it wasn't popular to be into art or photography. Oh, you're a photography nerd. You're a camera nerd. You're in the AV club. Kids used to get bullied for stuff today that if you do this stuff, now you're popular. Now you're a god. If you're a kid and you're into computers, gaming, anime, you draw, you uh, like filmmaking, you like any of that stuff, you're into tech. Well, today you're a god. You're popular. You could be king or queen of the school off of that. And you could also now make money as a teenager off of it. When I was young, you got attacked for this stuff or for having a remote interest in it, and it made you a social pariah. And there's so many things like that today that people are passionate about that I feel gets a bad rap. You know, uh, not that long ago, you used to get attacked and told how cringy you were if you did TikTok. Now TikTok's the gospel. The, it, it won in culture, and now it's popular. Now it's I. it's like – um. It's, it's insane. It's insane. Um, Nightmare Neil, thank you for the $2 super chat. You say I'm spitting fire. I appreciate you, brother. Um, John, Creative Minds, I love anime. Yeah, me too. I love anime. Um, lately, I've been uh, really into uh, My Hero Academia a lot. I've been watching The Asterix War. Um, I've been watching... Uh, you, uh, you get uh, you get some attention, I think, is what it is. Um, Jobless reincarnation is the English title. Um, 
I have a subscription to Funimation and to Crunchyroll. Um, so yeah, there's you know, and I love the anime community. There's a big problem in the anime community and YouTube right now with copyright uh, due to companies like uh, Suecia, Toei Animation, and other IP holders. Even for just using clips and doing fair use, there's no fair use in Japan. That's a whole nother episode I could go into. Rodimus Primal, one of my favorite channels on YouTube. Uh, massive um, nostalgia channel, retro uh, content around Transformers, especially the Generation 1 stuff. One of my favorite content creators to watch, actually. Rodimus Primal has been a big supporter of the channel. He says, yep, being a nerd got me being up a lot, too. Yeah, I feel you, brother. I really do. Um, you know, the, there's there's so much... There's so much out there that makes people like feel like they can't be themselves. And it really does bother me. It bothers me that even I, as a creator, um, there are things that I struggle with in terms of how will I be perceived in terms of um, content succeeding or failing. So there's that part. And then also, how will I be perceived for the things that I like? When I first started doing YouTube, I had imposter syndrome about being a nerd and about suppressing my sense of humor and the things that I like. So I started sneaking and smuggling it into my videos. If you watch my old videos, I started to smuggle and sneak my love of anime into things on my channel by having my background screensaver be anime or comics or, or things like that. And it kind of smuggled my love of nerd culture into the channel. And then I started doing it with uh, my Funko Pop figures and, and things like that. I started smuggling those things into the backdrop and into the background of my, my channel. Then I started using, with my Photoshop tutorials, I started using some of my cosplay photography from doing um, shots of cosplay models at conventions because I was really into that. Um, I even actually got to do a lot of great shots of um, cosplayers you'd know, like Yaya Han and some other people. And it, it was really dope. And I did get some early support on that in the channel of like just doing something different with Photoshop and Lightroom around some of those things. And what happened with those is by just like, I got to feel more comfortable as I climbed to 10,000 subscribers and beyond being more of myself by not hiding how into nerd culture I was and letting it um, organically find its way into the background of my content. And, and then I started outrightly um, incorporating some of it directly through, again, the backdrops and the design of everything that I had and the aesthetics and, and uh, people jammed with it. And um, all that stuff became mainstream, so it didn't matter as much. I mean, you guys literally see Pikachu right now chilling with my YouTube play button in the background, blurry background that it is back there. But um, yeah, you know, you guys... If you're in the live viewing audience, you can see that there. Uh, the, the, the Stormtrooper helmet uh, from Star Wars from the uh, sequels is there in the background as well. And so my nerd culture stuff uh, found its way into the channel. It found my way into some of my humor and my jokes like me mm, imitating Master Yoda I am or the Dark Lord of the Sith himself, the Palpatine leader of the Empire and the Separatist movement your feeble skills are no match for the powers of the youtube algorithm and so yeah i started doing like voices and gags and things like that on occasion showing in my type of humor into my content and what it did was it allowed me to feel more like myself it helped me develop my confidence more on camera because i didn't feel like i was hiding or ashamed of my hobbies my interest 
the things that I was passionate about, I got to find a way without taking away from uh, the content, my professionalism. Uh, you know, it's funny. They, uh, I spoke at Social Media Marketing World uh, before the pandemic hit, uh, and they played the Imperial March for me as my theme song going on stage. And I know that for some people that was slightly off-putting, but the uh, owner of Social Media Marketing World, uh, Michael Stelsner, is a big Star Wars nerd just like me, so he was fine with it. And then also um, the crowd there is older, so they, a lot of them have a love, love and nostalgia for Star Wars as well. And it, it was just fun because sometimes they do fun, goofy things at social media marketing world, uh, not taking, um, you know, everything so seriously. Sometimes there's a lot of fun games and theatrics. I mean, it's a marketers conference and a business conference that literally has uh, bingos, bingo and treasure hunts and has um, I like I think they did like almost like a Back to the Future Under the Sea prom thing one time or something like that. They did a Wizard of Oz play. I mean, so it's a really fun community. And people don't always take themselves too seriously. I mean, Judy, uh, Judy Fox, a really great friend of mine and everything. She's lovely. She actually literally gets up there in front of marketers on stage for all of her talks with a foxtail and uh, fox ears playing like off of her name. So like it's so you, you can be yourself and you can be fun and you can be goofy and you can be enduring and you can still be taken seriously and have a professional career and have uh, companies have your back and have speaking engagements. And it's just so good to know that we can be ourselves and we can just like, we can do that, but it doesn't, you know, sometimes it doesn't always feel like you can be yourself and that you can open up. It, it feels sometimes like um, that's just less and less um, able to happen. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't like that. I don't, I don't like the idea of like, what, like, cause I'm fine with some levels. I have a high level of rejection sensitivity being an artist is part of that. ADHD is part of that. Um, you know, going through bullying is part of that. But I do take criticism hard. I do take a lot of it to heart. It does get to me. I don't feel I, – I feel I take criticism well. I feel I don't respond to criticism well. People are very lazy about language with that thing. When I say I take criticism well, I mean that I'm already hypercritical of myself. And it means that I'm willing to adapt and improve and work on things that aren't working and to make changes. The thing is, I don't necessarily react or respond to it very well in the moment that's happening. I can be defensive. I can push back. I can get emotional. But it doesn't mean that I don't hear or accept that there might be some validity to the criticism giving and that I'm not taking it in incorporating the criticism if I think it is logical factual and um constructive if it is that then i build off of it if it is not then um i might whether i take whether i react to it well or not i might reject it and just not bother with it but i don't necessarily react well to it and the thing is i don't think most people should i think that if someone reacts well to criticism and this is not an accusation but i think i think that people who are praised for reacting well to criticism are much more calculated. I, I consider myself a pragmatic person. I can be a shrewd and calculating person, but a lot of you also know that sometimes I do wear my emotions on my sleeve, but if I'm not wearing my emotions on my sleeve, that means I'm making moves. That means I'm being calculated. That means that, okay, 
my reaction is now a controlled reaction and it's not by itself a manipulative thing to have a controlled reaction but it's not honest it, it not radically honest anyway it's not a hundred percent pure a measured and non-defensive reaction to criticism that where you're not being emotional and you're being controlling like control of your emotions and your reaction to very harsh or even unfair criticism well if you're doing that and you're controlled and you're measured whatever your reaction is and when people say oh wow you took you take criticism really well yeah you can take criticism really well when you're not having an honest response to how you feel about it or what you think about it and when you're giving a performance if you want to have if you want people to believe that you take criticism well because the biggest sin I'll, I'll do a dedicated video about this i'll do a dedicated podcast about this and i'll do a dedicated youtube video on the main channel about haters and criticism and the difference um because i think it's important but i'll tell you this all i have to do is flip my emotional kill switch and i can eliminate the cardinal sin of social media which is not reacting well to criticism Crit not reacting well to criticism is probably one of the seven deadly sins of social media right and the easiest thing to do if you want everyone to feel like you take criticism well and then not pile on is to throw your emotional kill switch delay reacting to criticism and then to answer all quests criticism with a follow-up question in a very calm vo voice and ask it very slowly and ask it very slowly and ask people, well, what do you mean by that? Like, what do you mean that I'm doing this? Or can you give me an example of where I'm doing this? And then you're putting more um, pressure on the other person to go deeper into their point. And then the thing is, if you disagree with that, you could say, well, that's how you feel about that. I don't, think I necessarily see it the same way but if that's what you're seeing I guess that's that there's something to it but I still just am not seeing what you're seeing and that's a measured response right but what you could be thinking in your head would be something radically different and I don't think that this is being entirely dishonest because what you are saying is your truth you're saying you do not see and accept the criticism that they're giving you don't see the thing that they're seeing you don't see it the same way but you might have a ton of emotions surrounding that the best thing you could do is give a dispassionate, a dispassionate and non-defensive response of that and just say, you know, if you're if that's what you see when you see that, then I, I understand that that's how you feel about it or that's your opinion. But that's not what I was doing or that's not my intention or that's not the way I see it. That's not the way everyone sees it. So I guess we just disagree here. And, uh, you know, what can I really you know, do here, or what would you do? Or what do you suggest? What do you think can be improved? Okay, well, that's interesting. Okay, well, how do you would do that? Well, why would you do that? Or, okay, have you ever, like, well, like, have you ever actually done that thing that you're suggesting I'm do? Or who do I go to if I want to do the thing that you're suggesting? Find a way to turn criticism into a constructive educational moment for both of you where you are showing your receptiveness to what is being said, and you're asking for clarification. Now, here's the thing. You could choose to use that, and you could say, and if someone says, well, are you going to follow the criticism or the advice? It's like, I'm going to study it. I'm going to analyze it. Why should I react to something without thinking it through? And I'm going to get a second and a third opinion on these things, but I hear you, and 
you know, I can look at it. What like, cause it's like, cause you can go, well, cause again, it's like, isn't it fair and reasonable for me to take what you're saying with a grain of salt and to ask my community what I should do or to ask for a second or third opinion or to study or analyze this? Isn't that a reasonable thing for me to do? And the answer is, well, yes, clearly that's the answer. So again, I'll do a deep dive on this and I'll do a talk about it. But I think that one of the most important thing is, by the way, if you're going to say that, you should mean it. <laughs> you should actually be sincere. And the thing is, even people I dislike who I think gave me unfair or unreasonable criticism in like uh, nine out of 10 things they said, I found the one thing they said that I think was an area I could improve on. And for me, for a primary example was it was one of the things that actually improved both of my main websites. Both of my way, main websites were improved because I didn't agree with 90% of what a hater and a heckler was saying to me. But the fact that they said anything at all made me look at my website differently. And I found things that they didn't criticize me for that I looked at with another set of fresh eyes and said, I think I could do better there. I think I can improve there. I don't think this is clear, or I don't think that this is a good design or, Hey, this is massively outdated. I haven't touched this part of the website in four years. I didn't even remember this page existed. And so they inadvertently were very helpful and very constructive. That was not their intent. The intent of this person that I am talking about was not constructive criticism at all. I made their, cons their criticism constructive. And I looked at myself honestly and said, you know what? They aren't right, but I can do better. And so for me, I try to turn almost anything I experience into value. I extract value from everybody, including my haters. I extract value from everyone, including my haters. I will not leave value on the table. I will extract and siphon every single last drop of value, even from a hater. <laughs> like, and you know, that's, that's like um, a tongue in cheek, like cynical way to think about it. But I think it's, it's, it's a tool. I think it's a helpful tool of, I don't have to agree with you, but you could be the prompt or motivation for me to reflect and analyze and to actually find, um, genuine opportunities to improve and to develop myself. It's like, oh, you were wrong about everything you said, but I used it to actually find some things that were worthy of criticism and self-reflection and analysis and improve upon myself. And I wouldn't have necessarily done that if everyone had just agreed with me or if everybody had just praised me. You do need criticism to improve. The problem is the source of the criticism. Good faith criticism is hard to come by. Good faith criticism is hard to come by. Good faith conversations are good to come hard to come by. Good faith debates are 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 good or sorry hard to come by, but they are necessary. They're essential. The problem is that many people have elevated their opinions to the point of needing to be believed as fact to validate themselves, and so. The problem then becomes, well, what do we what do we do, and where do we go from there? Another important thing is to learn that you can coexist with people you disagree with. By the way, that's super important. Um, probably a topic for another day. But I think that insecurity and imposter syndrome comes largely from all the times that we have been taken out of context or judged negatively 
treated unfairly, harassed, bullied, criticized, attacked, it's easily to see one or two things coming from what might be a person giving constructive criticism, good faith criticism, valid criticism. If you see one or two things in common with the way they're doing it or the way they're presenting with your previous bullies, harassers, or attackers or trolls, it could immediately put you on the defensive and make you perceive the person as that. And that's happened to me too, by the way. That's happened to me too. So uh, on both sides of that, actually, I've been perceived that way wrongfully because I didn't understand that I was presenting as in common or in kind with somebody else's experiences. And how could I know that? I'm not a mind reader, but I did manage to sort that out or feel that out intuitively. Not everyone will. And then there's another issue where I've been on the receiving end of it, of where this person was coming at and presenting to me in a way that was too similar to the way that I've been attacked in the past. And so I was immediately defensive and dismissive. But once again, you can work through that if you understand it and if you're self-aware and if you realize that there's some grain of potential truth to what might be being said here. And the thing that undermines a lot of your confidence is you don't want the worst thing that's in your own head to be seen by somebody else or to... Um, you know, echo, echo the truth. Um, I like what Clover Tack is saying. I absolutely consider the source when it comes to criticism Too many people, uh, not in the know, like to throw out uh, definitive advice. And I don't have time for this. I agree. I, I absolutely agree. Um, April says, same here. I analyze criticism, but get angry in the moment. I, I do. And the thing is, uh, so things are better taken with time patience and thoughtfulness. So sometimes what I look at is sometimes I think a delayed response can be a better response. Sometimes I think not everything needs an instantaneous reaction is a good way to start thinking. Like not everything needs, deserves, demands, or uh, merits an immediate reaction, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's something we have to look at. It's something we have to look at is that not everything requires an instant response. And we live in a culture that is massively reactionary and social media heightens and escalates that. Social media heightens the level of anxiety. General anxiety is heightened by the social media. And I'm not blaming the technology. I'm looking at that less as a technological thing and more as a cultural phenomenon. I look at it as a cultural phenomenon. I'm not blaming the technology. I'm talking about that it's at scale. It's at scale. It's human behavior at scale. And that's the issue, not the technology. So I'm not demonizing the technology. I get frustrated with people who do. It's the same thing I said about crypto and blockchain stuff earlier. We demonize technology instead of auditing human behavior and said the technology is not the problem. The problem is the behavior that is being scaled. The problem is the behavior being scaled. That's all technology does. Technology scales human behavior. That's it. It scales human behavior. It creates more accessibility to things. And it also makes things either more convenient, more practical, more accessible, more abundant. It does those things, which means that any bad things that happen as a result are a human problem. They're a human problem. 
and problems that social media exacerbates or contributes to is our reactiveness, our lack of thoughtfulness, sometimes our lack of empathy, and our lack of critical thinking and consideration in exchange for cheap, easy validation, dopamine, and convenient echo chambers to crawl into. And that's a, that's a harsh reality of the times that we're living in and the culture that we're living in. And it's something we are all learning to navigate. The problem is while we're learning to navigate it, we need more grace and tolerance and patience through the process because none of this has existed before. None of this has existed before. And that's the problem is we don't have a guide for truly dealing with and navigating it in real time. Because unlike almost everything else in our life where we can look to our past, we can look to our history, we can look to our elders, this is uncharted territory. This is uncharted territory. Human beings have not been experiencing this for long periods of time, and, and we don't know what to do. And so that's a large part of it. The other thing is in like when specifically when it comes to imposter syndrome and performance anxiety, like I said, I mean, with me, I have a large channel. I constantly feel, um, I feel inadequate a lot of times because, um, what is, what is being a 500,000 subscriber YouTuber? There's less than a hundred thousand people that know what that's like. There's less than a quarter. There's like 300,000. There's 300,000 people who knows what it's like to be a silver play button, hundred K YouTuber, right? There's only 30,000 or so channels that know what it's like to be a million subscribed YouTuber. So I estimate that there's maybe 60,000 to a hundred thousand people at best that know what it's like to be a 500 K YouTuber. There's a very limited pool of people that know what I'm experiencing and understand it and have have lived through it. Many of them are OG YouTubers who aren't active right now, so that limits the pool considerably as well. Very few of them have uh, my background, my niche, my type of content, so that limits the pool considerably. Most of them are in entertainment. I'm not. So there's only so many people in the education niche of content creation that are over 500K in any platform, I don't have a lot of people that I could go to that have lived experience and advice in this particular thing of what does living with this look like uh, to talk to. And many of them haven't, almost none of them have done it um, for a long period of time. Uh, and a lot of them are like, well, hey, I go to you for advice. <laughs> so there's, so um, for me, I constantly um, have to wonder, well, what comes next or what do I look to or who do I look to? And the thing is, there's no archetype. There's no prototype. There's very few people who have gone before me for me to say, well, that's what the right thing is because that's uh, what so-and-so did and it worked out well. There's, there's not, there's not necessarily... There's, I mean, it's not that there never will be, or it's not that there's no one to look to for advice or no one to look up to, but it's like, I don't actually full on straight up truth be told. It's like, I'm, I might be a mentor to many people, but there's very few people that 
as far as my peers and contemporaries, I can have peer mentors, and there are people that are successful than for uh, compared to me in other ways and other verticals. But it's very hard to find a Yoda. It's very hard to find a Yoda in my situation. It's very hard to find somebody who knows. Um, it's not that they, it's not to find someone who knows things I don't know. There's plenty of people for that. There's people smaller than me that know things I don't know that I learn through all, all the time and learn from all the time. But there isn't necessarily someone doing what I would want to be doing that has done it because there are too many instances where what I'm doing is relatively new and there's nobody who's done it for 10 years. There are people who've done it and have been successful and they've been successful for two or three years, maybe five at the most. But everything that I want to learn more about, there's almost no one who's done it for 10 years because it hasn't been around long enough. It hasn't been around long enough. I've done enough YouTube to be a mentor to other people. I've made enough content. I was editing videos before YouTube existed. I was doing graphic design before most of you knew me. I was doing marketing and branding for companies and I've done business and made money online. I have my decade plus of experience and almost everything else that I need to do. I have my decade of experience. But the things that I'm looking for, for, to, for what I want to pay attention to, they're too new. They are too new. And so the, because they're too new, everyone's a rookie or at best, everyone's only three years ahead of me or five years ahead of me. And there is some value to that. And I am learning from people like that. But if it's only three to five years, there's not a proven track record of nearly enough consistency. There's not nearly enough of the pitfalls that have been discovered. And it means it's an ever evolving thing and there's shifting sand. And so there's not necessarily, um, it'd be very um, difficult to, to say, I'm going to you know, put myself at the um, tutelage of a mentor in a thing that hasn't been around long enough for them to have put it in their time to become a master. At best, we can do peer learning and we can be students together and we can teach each other what we know and there's value in that. But, it, but in my entire life, I just haven't had um, a Yoda in what I'm doing. I've always had to fumble through it and learn on my own and make my mistakes and do that on my own. And it's isolating and it's lonely. And because it means that I lack formal training and the tutelage of a true master in almost anything I've ever done and have had to gain my own mastery through trial and error, it makes me insecure as hell about everything that I do. And a lot of you don't know that because I just do it anyway. And I have at least enough scraps of courage for that. And I have my results. I have my proof. I'm not just winging things and I'm not just doing things willy nilly. But I'm constantly insecure because I don't have formal training and tutelage from a master in almost anything I do. I've had to gain my mastery through nothing but experimentation, trial and, uh, trial and error, and the call to adventure. That's it. 
And it's partly because none of the things I'm doing were considered legitimate until recently. They weren't given a chance to be considered that. They have not been adopted by the institutions or the mainstream. It's all too new. It's part of being an early adopter. It's part of being a pioneer. All you get in return for it is you either get gold and glory or you get arrows in your back and that's it. That's scary as hell. Elliot, family of seven, thank you. Thank you for the consistency in helping us creators see through, see the good in ourselves. Thank you, Elliot. And thank you for being part of Awesome Creator Academy and for being a student of mine and for doing coaching with me. I always appreciate you. And um, I'm always happy to see how well you're doing and for you to be a success story. That's always meaningful to me. Uh, Hannah Day Bailey says, Roberto, thank you so much for being real and transparent. Thank you, 100%. Um, Information Man Show says, so you're self-made. People have a funny relationship with the concept of what being self-made is. So I'm not sure. I would like to believe them self-made, but a lot of people don't like that term and they think it's immodest or it's arrogant. But what I'll say is this. I went to community college. I don't have a four-year degree. I couldn't afford to go to a wildly robust or good school. I went to a community college in a small military town. Um, so I don't have a four-year degree in that kind of formal education. My parents bought me art supplies. My grandmother bought me a computer when I was 13 years old, bought it for the whole family with what she could. It was modest. It'd be a joke by today's standards. Uh, after that, my computers were built from cannibalizing parts that were donated to um, like a local guy who helped people do that. I taught myself HTML code from scratch while looking after my siblings uh, when I was young, when I was 13. I taught myself video editing for the most part. I was introduced to it by my friend Danny's father. He showed me what little bit he knew. I took that, but that was like a crash course and he didn't have formal training. And that was a like a, a little like and it was helpful. And it was always great to talk to him. But I ended up surpassing him really quickly by just learning. There was no YouTube back then to watch video tutorials. I learned it by just playing with menus and finding scraps of information and online forums all night. I learned in the primitive Internet. There was no online video tutorials or training. There was screenshots and message boards. That's it. There was no social media. Free hosting was 20 megabytes of files on AngelFire, GD Series, Lycos, and Homestead.com. That's it. So when I say, if I say I'm self-made, I think that's a byproduct of the era that I grew in being less robust and privileged and not having the new internet. I had the old internet from the web point, web 1.0. I had web 1.0. Like I'm from the old days. I'm from Encarta the online encyclopedia in Carta. Before Wikipedia existed, it was the digital, like, yeah, I'm from those days. I'm from DOS. I'm from Windows 95. I'm from that. I'm from Mac OS Tiger being new. I'm like old. I'm, I'm about to be 37. And I mean old for the internet. I'm about to be 37. I've been online since I was like 12 or 13 years old. There was no YouTube when I started video editing. There was no YouTube. I remember... Windows media files, WSF, ASF files, 
WMV files. I remember FFmpeg encoder. I remember FFmpeg server. I remember Flash and Macromedia Director when Macromedia had Flash instead of Adobe. I remember Macromedia Shockwave, real player. Real player, I remember that. LimeWire, BearShare, that's my era of the internet. And before that, obviously, the old computer stuff, DOS, Worm, Oregon Trail, Mavis Beacon teaches typing, all of that. But I'm saying like, so what I mean by this is I didn't have investors or backers and my parents didn't financially bankroll my dreams. And I didn't grow up where being a content creator was a thing. I was an adult when YouTube was made. I was 23 years old, I believe. YouTube was 2005. Yeah, I was like 21, 22 years old. I was an adult with bills to pay by the time YouTube existed. There was no making a living as a content creator. This is all relatively new territory. Um, and so that's the you have to understand that that's the era I came from. I don't think you can come from that time period and not be self-made if you're successful. Unless you were born to privilege. And then even then, money could only do so much because you would be limited by the technology of your time and you would have to develop expertise. So without formal training or high levels of um, formal education, um, without a ton of resources to be gifted or handed to me, very minimal or meager circumstances, no network, a small town, no connections, no you know, college favors to trade in, no alumni network, no fraternity, no nothing. Um, and like building up my community from scratch in the early days of YouTube, learning as I go, learning software as it's invented and comes out, learning platforms as they're invented and they come out. I don't know. Am I self-made? Can we say that I'm self-made? Because I wasn't invested in financially in the way that other people's ventures and startups are. I didn't raise capital. I made every dollar and every dime. I bought my own computer hardware. Like when I became an adult, all of that came out of my paycheck from working a nine to five job or from side hustling, you know, or for trading parts with people. So all my hardware, I bought it myself. I didn't, you know, take out loans. I didn't do So I, I did that. I didn't have anyone to borrow money. I couldn't lean on my parents because they didn't have money. So I don't know. Am I self-made? Did I meet the qualifications? Did I check enough boxes to be self-made to make that claim? Or did I just get lucky? Like people want to tell me that, oh, you're just lucky. I'm like, I don't know. I don't think I am. I think I'm lucky to be born an American. I think I'm lucky to be born relatively healthy. I think I'm relatively lucky to be born in the back end of the 20th century. But so were a lot of people, like billions of people. Like, well, not the US part, but a lot of people were born in first world English speaking countries, at least a billion people. So it's like, not all of them have the outcomes I do. Most of them don't. So how lucky was I? I don't know. Am I self-made? I think about that. That gives me some imposter syndrome. Am I self-made? Am I a byproduct of purely my biology, not my hard work? What, like, what is that? I don't know that, you know, that's something I think about. You know, I would like to think that 
I'm self-made. I'm not the byproduct of luck. They're like, people think growing a YouTube channel is lucky. It's like, I made 1500 videos. I never went viral once, not once. 1500 videos on my main channel, 500,000, 540,000, almost 550,000 subscribers. I never went viral once. Everything was incremental. Everything was incremental. It was just accumulations. Everything I do is accumulations. It's trial and error. I'm not blessed with the talent that other people have. Other people are more talented than me. I have to work harder than all of them because I don't have their talent. I have to do things hundreds of times, thousands of times to get the same results because I don't have their talent. I don't think it's other reasons. Other people will come up with other reasons that I have to work harder than other people. That's fine, whatever. But I, I just think a lot of it is I don't have other people's talent. And I know that. I'm self-aware of that. Um, I wish I did. But what I do is I train to overcome the talent deficit. I put in more time than other people to go overcome the talent deficit. And I study and I learn and I analyze. I don't have other people's intuition. I don't have their gifts for storytelling. I was talking to my friends, Audrey and Romina. I'm like, look, I don't have, I don't have the talent for keeping the magic of being a content creator in the way that I make my videos and teach. I wish I did. Colin and Samir are much better teachers for this generation of creators that want to learn it from also seeing an entertaining video and the magic. Catherine Manning is much better as a YouTube educator than me in keeping the magic of a video that aside from what you're educating feels warm and um, organic and feels like a YouTube video while you're also learning. Catherine Manning is a much better YouTube educator than me in terms of connecting emotionally with an audience on that level and keeping the magic of YouTube in teaching YouTube. Catherine's better than that at me. Nick Nimmin is infinitely more patient with beginners than I am. I can name a million ways in which a million people are better than me at something. And a lot of it on their part is that they strictly are just more talented than me. And that's it. And that's fine. I do not have other people's talent. I never have. So I just work really, really, really hard. And sometimes that's all you can do. Yeah. Sometimes that's all you can do. Um, there are other people who just will be naturally more gifted in a thing and it will come easy and natural to them. It'll be a part of their temperament and personality. Um, there are things where I do have talent and intuition, um, pattern recognition might be one of those things. Um, my aptitude for analyzing situations and feeling out data might be, um, I have an intuition about numbers and data and pattern recognition. And I have an instinct and I can, um, see things that other people can't. That's helped me in investing too. It's helped me. In content creation, it's helped me in investing. But other people, other people have a natural affinity and talent for understanding what an audience cares about. I don't. I do not know how to relate to people intuitively. I use data and I use cold reading in person. And I analyze social cues because I'm not socialized in a way to not be awkward and all I do is I process information very quickly in real time. And that's how I can like navigate 
um, social situations. And that's how I can negotiate deals is I can just read um, micro expressions and cues and uh, voice. And I can process that information through my ADHD brain and I can get to um, a conclusion and predict a micro moment in time. And that's it. And go from there. I do not have the ability to naturally interpret certain things. And I don't know how to relate to people in the way that other creators do. Other creators are much better at relating to their audience and building their audience. And they're much better at knowing what people want, why they want. And they're much better and more patient and more willing to make things that people want to watch. That's never been me. I am not in, I am not a natural at that. I can only, I'm only really good at the ability to, I'm really, I'm just an analyst. I'm just, a, I'm, and I'm not even formally trained in that. I use intuition for that. I'm just really good at pattern recognition and I'm really good at um, learning new things. And there's not necessarily an upper limit to my capacity to learn new skills. And I don't necessarily have to master them. Um, I'm, I don't necessarily have to master them. But my variety of options and my versatility and the speed at which I can learn things and process information is probably um, what my actual talent, if I have one, is. I would say that if I have a talent, it's my intuitive aptitude. It's my ability to learn new things, a variety of new things, and to learn them relatively quickly and to develop competency in them very quickly but not necessarily achieve a level of mastery, but my variety of options can allow me to challenge someone who has mastery over one thing. The array of options I have puts me at a level to be able to compete with someone who has mastery over, over the one option they do have or where the one option they are the most talented. I can bring three or five things to bear that will put me on their level. That's what I have. That's basically my one ability that is the one magic allowed to roberto blake that is it you know that's what i have um so i mean there's that it's not the worst skill set to have <laughs> uh live production tips and tools says roberto you are super talented and just unique you are you you are not nick you're roberto yeah no that's fine like yeah i i'm not i'm not trying to down on myself i'm just like again this is an episode about imposter syndrome i'm just explaining part of like my how the way in which I'm critical of myself is important to understand. It's it's important to understand the way in which I'm critical of myself, because then you understand um, something a bit more about me. And then also you understand like, how much effort it actually takes for me to produce the result that you're seeing, because of how much of it is a head game. And I don't think anyone talks about how much of a head game YouTube is. YouTube is so much of a head game. And I think the capacity to be successful is largely proportionate to your ability to handle the mental portion of YouTube. So Miss Maddie says talent in the end of the in the end of the day is overrated because you got to do something with that talent for it to actually make a difference to your success. I agree with that I largely agree with that. I think that's an excellent point. Um, 
I think that's an excellent point. I know a lot of talented people that aren't successful because they don't use it. Um, I have another one here, dude. I respect. I disagree respectfully. You are talented. Yeah, in my own way, but I'm not as talented as other people in the ways that matter in the YouTube community, and the way and the things that make you successful at YouTube. The things that make you successful at YouTube are your ability to um, do storytelling. I am not a like I'm not a five out of five on storytelling. I am probably at best a three out of five on storytelling. And the most successful YouTubers are a five out of five in storytelling. I'm like a two point five or a three. Um, the other things that make you uh, successful in YouTube is um, cinematography and filmmaking and creative visual acumen. My creative visual acumen is a three out of five. And that's not only in the production of the video side, my creative acumen visually is a three out of five in, um, in not only uh, video production and creation, but also in um, graphic design. I'm probably about a 3.5 out of five there. I'll give myself some credit. I'm a 3.5 out of five there. I'm slightly above average there. And in photography though, I'm a 4.5. I do give myself that. I'm a 4.5, a four to a 4.5 in the photography side. But on the video side, in terms of visual creative video, I'm bland, I'm a three. My editing is not special in any way, shape or form. I do not, I'm not a five out of five in video editing creatively and visually and aesthetically. I'm a 4.5 to a five in efficiency of editing and editing speed. I am fast as hell when it comes to editing. My ability to do creative and visually interesting edits, I'm a three, I'm like a three, I'm average. I'm average. I'm above average. I'm excellent in speed. I'm more than above average in speed. When it comes to visuals in video, creatively, I'm a three. It's not special. There's nothing special about it. It's serviceable. That's it. And that's fine. Um, the most successful YouTubers, they are five. They set the standard on that. Those people, those are your Casey Neistats. Those are your Emma Chamberlains. Those are your Peter McKinnons. They're special. Those are your Mr. Beast. Those are your James Johnny. They're five out of five. They're special. They're talented. I'm serviceable, but I'm fast. That's where I excel. I'm fast. That's it. And I'm efficient. I'm fast and I'm efficient and I'm organized. That's where I excel on video editing. Creatively, visually, not special, not in the least. Um, the thumbnail design. The thumbnail design side, uh, I'm very good at the photography side of that. I am slightly above average in the graphic design side of that for today's standards. In the in the old days of YouTube, I was probably a little better, but the standards were very low. So I'm probably about 3.5. I'm slightly above average on that. On the graphic design side of things, I'm slightly above average. I've never been a 5 out of 5 graphic designer. I've never been a 4 out of 5 graphic designer. I've always been a 3.5. I've always been slightly above average on that. Photography, you can give me a four, you can give me a 4.5, you can even theoretically give me a five. Okay, I'll take it. But I still have room to grow there. So probably a four or 4.5 if we're being nice, if we're being generous. Um, I can say that I'm definitely above average on that. So I'll give myself at least a four on the photography side of that. So, okay, cool. But you need to be good at thumbnails to do that. Um, 
headlines, headline writing, and titles. Titles for YouTube videos. I've never had a viral video on YouTube. I do have a lot of videos that have over 100,000 views. I do have a lot of videos over 50,000 views. That's not too bad. But the best YouTubers, they write sensational headlines. They write that good, good clickbait. They get people interested and engaged in content. I do not have only, I only have one video over a million views. So compared to them, I'm trash. But compared to most of the platform, headline writing, you can give me a 3.5. I'm slightly above average. Slightly above average, that's how I got where I am. I'm slightly above average on that, 3.5. Best YouTubers, biggest YouTubers, they're all four, they're all five out of five on that. They all write titles that get massive views. They can average the views that are my outlier videos, every upload. So they're good at that. Um, titles, uh, not just titles, topics that people care about. I'm not really good at that because I never care about popular things and I hate trends. I instinctively resist them. So I'm not good at that. So I'm a three. Like I'm average on that. I'm average on that. I do not capitalize on trends. Everyone else capitalizes on trends. Um, collabs. I'm a two out of five collabs. Absolutely. Collabs networking with other YouTubers, incorporating other YouTubers, commentating on other YouTubers. I'm a two out of five. I'm a two out of five. I almost never do it. I'm a two out of five. Um, what else makes you successful at YouTube? Performance on camera. Performance on camera makes you good at YouTube. I'm probably actually, in terms of performance, delivery, public speaking, I'll take a four. I'm about four on that, four, 4.5. I can take that happily. I, I have worked on that. I was a 3.5 like uh, a little while ago, like a couple of years ago. I'll take a four. I'll take a 4.5. I'll, I'll, I'll gladly take that. Um, audio. My audio is serviceable at best. I'm a three, three, 3.5. No matter how hard I try or how much money I throw at it, sometimes my audio is still crap. So um, like a 3.5 on that podcast being the exception because I'm like the setup I have, you could almost not fail, but even that I still get wrong sometimes. Um, so like maybe 3.5 there, 3.5 to a four there. Audio could definitely be better. On my main channel, maybe a 3.5. My audio is serviceable. It's a little above average compared to most YouTubers. About 3.5 could be better. That's a technical thing I can keep learning at. It's probably my strong, my weakest suit. Um, marketing. Marketing, I might be a four out of five. I could be stronger on it, believe it or not. I'm about four out of five on marketing. Most YouTubers, not as good at me, even the biggest ones. But um, some of them use a team and they outsource. That's actually really smart of them. I'm a four out of five on marketing. Branding, you can give me a four, 4.5 on branding. Absolutely. Um, overall communication skills, I'll take a five on that. That I think I do. I think I do excel on communication. I'll take a five. Video production side, 3.5, maybe a four if we're being generous. 3.5, maybe a four if we're being generous, but not cinematography. There's a difference. Uh, General production, sure, it's fine. It's a little above average to actually decent. So yeah, four out of five, fine. Four out of five, it'll be nice. I'll give myself four out of five on that. Engagement, being invested in your community. I'll happily give myself anywhere from a four to a five on that one. I think I do very well there. I think I did very well in the early days on that as well. So 
I'll give myself a four to a five on that to be nice. Sure. But the things that really, really stand out and make the biggest YouTubers the biggest YouTubers, again, a lot of them, they don't have to engage and do that to accomplish that. Mostly for a lot of them, it's their on-camera performance and their personality. It's their edits. It's their topics. It's their ability to write headlines. It's their ability to make clickable thumbnails. It's their ability to tap into trends. It's their willingness to play the game with other YouTubers and collaborate and commentate on each other um, and, and uh, do that. I struggle with that as an introvert. Um, I struggle with that with high rejection sensitivity. I don't like asking people for help. I don't like asking people to share things. I don't like asking people to do anything. So, and the thing is to be a successful YouTuber, largely you have to do those things in the end. And it actually is really helpful and it makes your content perform better. It makes it stronger, stronger to move with a community of people. I'm very bad at it. I'm very bad at asking my peers to help me be successful. I'm terrible at it. I'm a two out of five. So that's, that's that like, um, so yeah, there's, there's any number of ways that everybody plays the game better than me. There's any number of ways. Many of you listening to this or watching this, like, to be honest with you, a lot of you will be much more successful content creators than me. Given enough time, given enough content, a lot of you, if you made a thousand videos like I have, y'all would have millions of subscribers. If a lot of you made 1500 videos, y'all would have like 2 million subscribers. Most of y'all here probably would have much more subscribers than me um, because you don't have my deficiencies. You and many of you would play the game. Whereas I struggle with that. I don't really love the game in that way. I love making content. I love connecting with an audience. I love monetizing and mastering that. I love data and I love analytics. But the other things you do to become a successful YouTube, I'm not in love with most of them. And I'm not naturally suited to most of them. And they're not always things I would like to, like, they're not always things, there's things I should and will and have to work harder at, but they're not always things that I enjoy working hard at um, because they're not suited to me naturally. So, and I pointed out like a lot of them. I think I'm, really good at the monetization side though. I would give myself like a 4.5, a four out of five at the monetization side. Um, Tech Bytes with Ron Nutter says, Roberto, I have a background in broadcasting and I would give you a four to a 4.5 for your audit. Thanks, I appreciate that. On the podcast, absolutely, yes. On my main channel, uh, I still think I need work, but some of that I think is just me navigating that I've changed hardware so much. Uh, that sometimes I don't always adjust some hardware to be compatible with each other. Um, especially with the new cameras, you know, especially with the new cameras. Um, so, yeah. Um, Erica Robbins says, Roberto, you do have some of the cleanest, catchiest thumbnails. Very recognizable. I subscribed to over 300 channels in yours. Tim Cast, Peter Mon, and Townsend's are the ones that stand out. I appreciate that. I really do. Thank you. That does mean a lot to hear that. Um, Elliot says, you're very humble to express your faults. I think I'm self-aware. I don't know. Humility is a word I have um, struggled with, the word humility. Um, I like to think that I have appropriate levels of modesty or that I have what you might call a sense of um, propriety right? 
uh, words matter. I like the specificity of words. So I like to think that I have um, the capacity to be modest, appropriately modest. And I think I'm self-aware and I think I have a sense of propriety. I don't know how I feel in relation to the word humble. I know how people mean it and it's different than what the word actually means a lot of times. And so I don't take offense to it, but I don't like making the claim that I'm humble because I do think that I have uh, pridefulness. I don't think I'm arrogant because I don't overestimate my abilities, but I do think I have some level of conceitedness and I take that. I do think I'm prideful and I do think I'm petty. I think I'm prideful, petty, and that I can be conceited. But I'm not arrogant because I don't delusionally overestimate my abilities. I have an appropriate sense of my abilities. And I have a healthy amount of ego in proportion to my accomplishments. I may actually not have enough ego in proportion to my accomplishments. Something me and my therapist are working through. Um, but it might be healthy enough to qualify to have enough self-esteem to do uh, a considerable amount of things that I've managed to do. So that's... Um, so I think that that um, is kind of a, a, a good assessment of me. That's probably a good assessment. That's probably accurate at least. Um, yeah, Malevolent, you've been killing it. I agree. Thank you, Elite Landscapes, Life Stories. Actually, a lot of y'all have been killing it. I've been actually digging into some of your channels in the background, um, and a lot of you are killing it. Malevolent Elephant uh, says, dang, I have over 8 million, uh, sorry, over 8 videos with over a million, including two shorts. Nice, nice, bro. I let Curtis, good job, man. Um, I need to do more with shorts on the main channel. Right now, we're running a lot of experiences, uh, experiments on the music channel, and shorts will be, um, shorts will be a big part of that. Um, there will, in fact, be an experiment on the music channel where we'll probably do 30 days of shorts. I'm actually planning a test for that um no it's not stupid to ask what imposter syndrome is uh but i like words matter um and so what i'll do is i'll read you google's uh definition of it don't feel bad about asking about that at all um don't feel bad at all about asking that let's see where is that uh where's that question or even without that uh, being on the screen, let's just, um, I'll just tell you what it is. Uh, imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome refers to an internal experience of believing that you are not as competent as others perceive you to be. While this definition usually narrowly is applied to intelligence and achievement, it has links to perfectionism and a social context. So there you go. Uh, what causes imposter syndrome? Imposter syndrome is likely the result of multiple factors, including personality traits such as perfectionism and family background. One theory is that imposter syndrome is ruined in families, value, achievement above all else. It, yeah, that's that's true. Um, and I don't blame my parents for that, or at least not in whole or in part, or at least for certain, not my mother. Uh, you know, dad might be another case. Um, you know, but um, as many fathers, especially immigrant fathers, are. It, hard on you demand perfection excellence at a military father so there was that so yeah we unpacked that that's probably a good part of it but it's not wholly the part of it school and doing that does it too also having a chip on your shoulder as an, you know coming from an immigrant family or minority it's not uncommon to always have to be better at everything or be perfect or you're nothing it's it's a common enough thing i also personally just like winning and um 
I don't envy or jealous people who beat me. I actually am motivated by them. I, even as a track and cross country runner, I didn't like um, the idea of beating other people to have a slower time than myself. I'd rather have a bronze and have my best time than beat everyone else and have a gold and have my third best time or get slower. I, I, I would rather just be better. I'd rather just be better than beat other people. Be, being, being better than other people is meaningless if I'm less than I was. If I'm less than I was, if I'm less than I was a month ago, a week ago, a year ago, but I still managed to beat everybody else who tried, it's not, it's not meaningful enough to me because I'd rather be better than just settle at being the best compared to everyone else. And I'm less than what I was. Well, that's not my best. So what does it matter? I, and that that's not everybody's feeling. And I understand that that's personal to me. You get a little sample of my own neuroticism, right? You get a sample of like, why well, I'm a crazy person, right? So um, I would rather be better than be, I'd rather be better than myself than better than other people. I'd rather be the best that I'm capable of being than be better than other people. And it's not even close. And it's not even close. Um, so there's that. Elite Landscape and Life Stories has a comment. He says, mental battle of YouTube. I simply work all day, edit all evening, hit repeat, and I have faith in Roberto's knowledge. Don't look at my numbers anymore. I appreciate that. That's actually really dope. I, I really do appreciate uh, the love that comes from the community and the live streams and the chat. I also appreciate the super chats. I think I got the, all of those, everyone who um, did super chats. But um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Get lost vlogs. I have no problem uh, explaining what imposter syndrome is. It's hard for a lot of people to they you know to uh, know what it is. So, no, uh, uh, definitely. Elite Landscape says, "I'm older than you, Roberto, but you are my Yoda." And for this, a creator economy and life lessons. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate that. That means the world to me. Um. I mean, you know, um, I have my own hangups, I have my own idiosyncrasies, I have my own insecurities, but a lot of it is rooted in the fact that I just know that there are things that I'm not good at. Um, there are things I know that I'm, I'm not just, I'm just not as good at them as uh, the people that uh, I respect or that um, have the levels of success that I might want to achieve. And um, I work as hard as I can at it, but you know, there's only so much you can do and it is what it is. Um, I'll give you, I'll give you a primary example. Um, I think that one of the other things that holds me back is how bad I am at asking for help or asking for anything. Um, I'm really good at marketing and I can be good at sales, but I like, I feel imposter syndrome asking people to buy things. Um, it's necessary. I'm good enough at it uh, in sales. In sales, I hold myself back because of my imposter syndrome and also because um, of my resentment of how many scummy people in, in um, online spaces take advantage of their audience and try to milk every nickel and dime and dollar out of their audience. And I don't like that. And the thing is, I make good products and I make the best things that I know how to make. And I always work on improving them for the community and even I have trouble selling 
directly to my community because I don't want to ask for anything. I don't want to ask for support. I don't want to ask people to buy things. And it's a problem because you should, if you are making good things and I am good at sales, I was a top in sales. Every time I had a retail job, I was number one in sales in the um, store, often top 10 in the district, but I'm really bad when it comes to um, feeling like I'm asking my community for something. I'm terrible at it. I'm terrible at even asking people sometimes to support my second or third channels. It's, um, it's something I work through because of the imposter syndrome because, and the thing is there's nothing to feel guilty about when I'm making quality content and when I'm making quality um, products. It's like, it's, I shouldn't feel the way that I feel. And many of you, you probably are doing the same thing I'm doing. You're doing great stuff and you still don't feel you're worthy enough to ask for anything. And it's not because you're not doing really dope projects or really good videos or anything. It's that there's some level of insecurity in it or you feel bad or you feel like, oh, you don't want to be another one or this or that. There's so many problems that come from just being in your own head too much that interfere with your ability to be successful regardless of ability. You can have all the ability in the world, but if you're defeated in the landscape of your own mind, you've already lost and and it snatches defeat from the jaws of victory. It, it, it snatches defeat directly from the jaws of victory every single time you lose the mental game. Every time you lose the mental game, it was a win. It was an L. It was right there. It was waiting for you. And you still like it was a W. Sorry, it was a W. It was a W that was right there. And you somehow managed to just take it, bend it up, fold it up and managed to manifest an L out of a guaranteed W. And I'm saying that because I do that all the time. I do it all the time. It's and uh, like I don't have the absolute definitive answer for addressing it other than knowing that you have to acknowledge the problem first. And then if you're like me, you incrementally work on it uh, and chip at it a little bit at a time, day by day. And the thing that I think helped me the most with my imposter syndrome on YouTube was the the two and a half years I was a daily content creator, which don't recommend without a doctor's note doing that nonsense. Like going daily is rough. It's why this podcast sometimes is more sporadic than I would like, but I'm going to be as consistent as I can be because um, I think showing up and facing that, that imposter syndrome, facing that fear, showing up, uploading, pushing record, that's one chip at a time of chipping away at the imposter syndrome. And it's also laying one brick at a time at the foundation of your success by building your confidence account, building your confidence one day, one execution, one attempt, one awesome thing at a time. And that's why I came up with create something awesome today. I came up with create something awesome today because it was like, what if I showed up every day? What if I showed up every day and I just tried? What if I showed up every day and I create something awesome that I'm happy to put out and share into the world or that I'm proud to put my name on? What if I do that every single day? Well, at the end of the year, I've got 365 things to show for myself. And maybe if even 10% of them are good, I've got a couple dozen things to show for myself. And wouldn't that be great? Or even if the bare minimum of them are good, then I'd have at least a dozen things to show for myself every single year that I can say I'm proud of. And wouldn't that be great? And if I keep doing that enough times, I'll have all these great things behind me that I've done. And wouldn't that be great? And that's how I came up with Create Something Awesome today. That's how I came up with that is – what if I just showed up every day and did the very damn best thing that I'm capable of that is creative 
and that I'm passionate about and that I want to put out there. And what if, and what if every day that I do that, what if even 10 people cared? Well, then thousands of people are on the table every year to care. And then what if I did that for three years? Then I'd have 10,000 people. And that was the plan. That was my plan. That was my plan. And somehow in three years, it ended up being 100,000 people. Three years consistently, mind you, because I tried sporadically doing things. That's not really great. But when I was consistent, when I was consistent, I went from zero to 100,000 subscribers in three years by being consistent. 2013, you can go look. I didn't have subscribers in 2013. 2013, I didn't have subscribers. 2013 to 2016, I got 100,000 subscribers. Not that everyone's going to do that, but creating hundreds upon hundreds of results can be meaningful. Hundreds of hundreds of attempts at results can be meaningful. And slowly but surely, you can build confidence because you have something to show for yourself and you've increased the amount of opportunities to um, have something to show for yourself. And that matters. Um, and yeah, Breezy M says getting to 10,000 subs is hard enough. So I can imagine how difficult it is to get to 100,000. I'm sure that only a small percentage of channels um, have 100 or more. Well, let me let me tell you some things that might make a lot of you feel better about your YouTube journey. 90% of content creators never get 10,000 subscribers. They're estimated to be 70 million to 100 million channels on YouTube. Let me tell you the numbers. Let me tell you the facts. As of the making of this podcast, there are only about 600 channels with diamond play buttons. There are only 600 channels, not even whole humans, just channels. Some of them are corporations. Some of those are brands. Some of those are TV shows. Some of those are mainstream celebrities. But there are only 600 channels that have 10 million subscribers on YouTube. Diamond play button, 